0: It was a separate, it was two, two, two pieces, pieces of paper stapled it. together, yeah. and I had them with me last night, and then I brought them here. And probably not, weren't even around uh, here. Right?
1: No, it's not. I don't Welcome, know. everyone. I'm glass. I serve as Director of Studies at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I'm deeply honored to be introducing two heroes of mine who have inspired me for decades and have played such an important role in contemporary Buddhist thought and practice. Joanna Macy is widely recognized the most influential eco-Buddhist thinker and activist in the West. She's raised Such important questions about what it means to be a Buddhist in a time of ecological and social unraveling, real growth society. How is Buddhist thought and practice called to contribute to the great turning to a life-sustaining society? How might Buddhist understandings of the self suggest that we are most interdependent with the trees and plants around us with whom we breathe? Joanna's work as a scholar of systems theory, an activist, a Buddhist teacher, an author, poet, translator, and for so many thousands of us, work that reconnects practices that support individual and social change has had a profound impact on the environment, on the development of eco-Buddhism. And if you are unfamiliar with Joanna's work, I highly recommend her many translations of the German poet, as her books, Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory, The Dharma of Natural Systems, Active Hope, Out to Face the Mess We're in Without Going Crazy, to Life, World as Love or World as Self, Courage for Global Justice and Planetary Renewal, and Joanna's really remarkable memoir, Widening Circles. Stephanie Cox, a hero of mine, has been working closely with Joanna for many years, including collaborating on the work that will be explored today, has been one of the four used contemporary eco-Buddhism. Stephanie's books, Green Buddhism, Practice and Compassionate Action in Uncertain Times, the really lovely and compelling I think- conversation with trees and intimate ecology. Um, mindfully green a personal and spiritual guide to whole earth thinking and what has been so important dharma rain sources of buddhist environmentalism her work has provided such beautiful and helpful resources for so many of us for whom responding personally socially and politically to climate change species extinction social inequality inequalities of our buddhist practice Stephanie is professor emeritus at the Rubenstein School of Environmental and Natural Resources at the University of Vermont, where she taught for decades, integrating in her teaching as she does in her writing, her background in science, education, and theology. We are also grateful is a teacher for us at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. If at any point in the next 90 minutes, you are having challenges with Zoom, please email contact at buddhistinquiry.org and we'll try to help resolve them over email. There will also be a time for questions for Joanna. If you have a question, please type it in the Q and A box at the bottom of your Zoom. And please be patient as there will likely be more questions and there will be time to address them. And also, if you would like to captions to read a machine-generated transcription of what is being said, you can go to the bottom of your Zoom window and click either on live transcript or it may just say the word more and you on the carrot, the little arrow pointing up and then click on show subtitle. So Joanna and Stephanie, I'm so, so happy for joining us and we are so pleased that you are here. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, William, uh, and thank you all for your good support staff at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies for hosting us today. I want to begin on behalf of both of us in gratitude to our beloved earth and all our beautiful relations with ocean and trees, the great mountains and rivers, and the many, many plant, animal, and fungal beings of every shape and form I'm here today in the Pacific Northwest, just to be grounded with you out there in uh, electronic space. I'm near the confluence of the Willamette and Columbia Rivers, whose lush valleys were carved out by Ice Age floods and then peopled with amazing trees and cultures. I'd like to honor the native people here as both ancestors and survivors of this place the Multnomah, Clackamas, Klawiwala, and Cascades are Watlala bands of the Chinookan peoples and the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya. Well, at this very moment, emerging from the pandemic or partly emerging, finding our way through this incredible uncertainty, we are so fortunate to be able to gather together today for this program to feel our solidarity in the midst of separation, and to celebrate the great stream of life that weaves us together. Well, Joanna asked me to begin by telling you a bit about the story of this book, A Wild Love for the World. And she will of course tell you the most important parts to her. But what I remember most right at this moment is the book arrived in our hands in early March, 2020. I flew from Portland to California, so eager to show it to Joanna. And then across the several days I was there, everything started shutting down. We were in lockdown by the time I got home. Not the best timing for launching a brand new book, but we still had our parties. And of course, it has been quite a year, as we can all testify. But let me go back a little earlier to the beginning Before there was a book, there was a tree, a very large and generous sycamore tree at Kay Jones Family Farm in Trout Lake, Washington. And by that tree, I sat down with Joanna and Kay and shared my idea in August of 2018. It had seemed to me that someone should be doing a book to honor Joanna Macy's thought and legacy. And I had asked, hey, isn't anybody doing a book? And of course I had trained with Joanna, read all her books and taken all of her ideas to my classes at University of Vermont. And these kinds of fest strips or honoring books are fairly common among people in, in the academic world to really be sure their legacy extends out longer, way past their lives. So this little idea picked up energy pretty quickly. Uh, of course, first, Joanna had to want to do it. She wasn't so sure. But when Shambhala said, we will do it, and they gave us a, their commitment, we were in business. So every month for almost a year, Kay, Joanna, and I met in Joanna's home for our work sessions. We were looking for reflections from people who knew Joanna's work really well, who could see how it shaped whole fields of thought, such as eco-psychology, eco-philosophy, eco-Buddhism. And for people who knew her and her life intimately, her long, beautiful life. Well, of course, I had no idea how, what I'd signed on for. So many beautiful chapters came in. It was utterly thrilling. Wonderful, rich stories that had never been pulled together before. No one had really given the histories and complexities of how Joanna's first teaching got going in Europe and the UK, among many things. It just turned out that the scale of Joanna's gift to the world was much greater than any of us knew. I mean, even Joanna herself and certainly her family had no idea. Well, as it turned out after we shuffled all the cards and put all the puzzle pieces together, The book is shaped now around the big ideas that Joanna has been teaching across all these decades, a planetary sense of self, the power of grief work, interdependent causality, deep time, and how the only way to do this work is together. And I will just say one of my own special joys was compiling the impressive bibliography of Joanna's writing that was not in existence anywhere else and that really honors her long life of scholarship and thinking. Well, the word that came out of this book together was Arbeitsfreudigkeit. This is how Joanna described our process. In that's a German word that means something like work joyfulness. So indeed, we did have great fun together, the three of us. Amazing chemistry, great love for each other, for the world, for the teaching, for the Buddha Dharma. Now I'll just say as I get ready to turn this over to Joanna in the foreword, which our wonderful writer David Abram offered for us, he describes Joanna as a magical creature. whose life radiates out to touch and enliven every cell within our larger spherical body. So this first book we want to talk with you about, A Wild Love for the World, is kind of a book of magic and a book of real people responding to our beloved world with joy and passion. So I am honored and blessed to have helped birth this book with the help of so many thoughtful writers and the support of our funders, and the good people at Shambhala. So Joanna, dear friends, teacher, mentor, thinking partner, I will forever be in your mind stream. My love and gratitude is boundless. And it's a thrill today to be celebrating this book with you, even as we have yet another book coming out in June, but more on that later. Let me ask you, Joanna, what is it about this book A wild love for the world that is so meaningful for you.
0: A world of things. But first, I want to say hi to you all. Thank you for joining us today. And can you imagine, I'm sure you are already, how incredible it would be and was for me to have someone show up who had been using my work and loving this work. Uh, I no longer should call it my work, it belongs to so many of us. And to say, uh, do you want to have a book? I'll help you do it. We'll pull this together. You've heard her describe it. I mean, that is a, a gift from heaven no in way did I ever imagine this. And the, it has been a romp the whole way through because we pulled it off right before the pandemic started. And there was a certain uh, lightheartedness in that and, and sense of adventure and sense of it being a kind of, well, a party because I, we were inviting uh, so many beloveds who from 40 years of the work that started out uh, despair and empowerment work, out of my activism mainly in nu- around nuclear energy and its uh, lethal waste, mountains of it, uh, there was such anguish in me And that anguish built and tipped into a sense of enormous uh, grief for our world and for the future ones. That we were contaminating their world from here for the rest of, well, the life of the planet. uh, Because the uranium in depleted uranium uh, bombs that we use, projectiles, uh, that's half-life is the age of our planet till now. Anyway, you see I get off the track on my obsessions, but this one I'm gonna show you if you don't have it, if you can see it, how beautiful it is. So the things I love about it was first of all, Uh, Stephanie, this incredible woman whom I had admired from the time she was my student at Star King through her years at uh, uh, Vermont and her awards there and then this offer, but the adventures that came back to me uh, from these voices. Uh, from Australia, from the UK, from Latin America, from uh, the Far East, from Russia, from Western Europe, from Japan, from China, from Korea. And it was like getting all my beloveds in a space together. And because once you share, for me, once you share your heart, which is what the work asks you to do, share your heart in a way that is so complete because it's sharing how your heart breaks for our world and the future ones, and the dreams of the ancestors as well. So uh, I uh, love this, sense of a chorus. And wherever I go, uh, these voices, like all who take part in this work with me, and many, so many of you will be with me. So many of you who've done the work, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm meaning. That how the heart that breaks open when we share for each other our deepest feelings about our beloved earth, and then find that uh, they're rooted not in our craziness, not in our mental disturbances, (laughs) not in our uh, depressions or, but, in our connection we're letting and something we find ourselves speaking that connection and that connection is like our earth speaking yeah so this is these voices each have their own stories each have their own way of discovering that they are beloved of life in our earth and that earth can even Yes, that can be experienced and is, speak through us. For Earth is alive in us. And at this time when she is so threatened, this feels more wonderful than ever to be able to speak. Yeah. And then I want to say that, well, for two things. I want to talk about the... uh uh what we call the epiphanies. This is a part of this book that I wrote. Now, with case help, because we had to sort through, the idea came to us that this book really would need a little bit of my voice, that the people would want to know. Here, we did it with Joanna. Let her come with us into this adventure of sharing. And so they. I thought, well, well it'll be those moments in my life that were turning points and we called them are my epiphanies of the appearance of the sacred you can't create an epiphany you cannot schedule an epiphany it catches you off guard always and it changes your life and so uh with thought up, I sifted them out, shook them in a frying pan and saw that they were 12 and that fit two to a section or 10. Anyway, what were they? Yeah, ten. there were 10. Oh, yeah. Ten. Yeah. Well, you know, I I exaggerate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the first one beginning when I was uh, 16, and uh, I wonder whether my editor would think that since it was before, long before I'd heard of Buddhism and was uh, an enthusiastic young Christian, I, uh, but a baffled one in this uh, epiphany. My editor, dear Stephanie said, Joanna, This is where you learned your amazing trust in life. And that trust, that's right. And so that's what we called it, trust in life. Uh, Whatever happens, things are basically okay. Because I'm here. I've been given this life. I've been brought forward in this web of life. It's okay. We're okay, you're here, it's okay. We're here together, uh, ha- having, and then it takes me uh, through my life. And I feel grateful to this book for having helped me uh, see and, and, and be grateful for uh, these moments. These moments that happen to us all, you know, it could happen to you, you could stub your toe uh, this afternoon and something happened to you and you bump into something that would change your life. Be prepared for your life to turn inside out. Yeah, that's a great key to being awake. I remember now that I was so excited about the book that I didn't mention where I'm talking from. So I grew up in the East That was very important. I'm a child of the Eastern Woodlands, but 20 some years ago, I came back to the state where actually I was born and lived till I was five, California, but now the Bay Area and to Berkeley with my husband, my husband, Fran Macy, uh, who accompanied me through this work in the most wonderful way. And here uh, was, I was here in the last 40 years. Did I say 20, it was 40 years, 40 years. And uh, I got to know uh, at a time when uh, other uh, people of white skin, uh, colonizer, settler background, were getting to know the history of the peoples who were here first for thousands of years and their wisdom, something of their character. And I've become convinced that if we make it through this great challenge, if we make it through this great unraveling and go around the great turning into a planetary culture, we have all the capacity for that, we do but we won't make it without the teachings of the indigenous people of Turtle Island. I've been so moved by them and those who live here and where I right am in Berkeley are of the Ohlone people. It's been such a privilege to live in, uh, to, to know and learn from them. So what else was I going to say, Stephanie?
2: Well, you know, I think the joy is one of the big parts of your message. When we were talking about this seminar, Joanna said through her whole life, whenever I love something, I just want to share it with other people. That's my very first impulse. And that's I- why <laughs> everything grows just- out of that. So many friends, so many students, and actually there were so many chapters for the book, we couldn't quite include them all, but... Um- <laughs> Yeah, It's good. been a thrill, but you know, the other thing that happened was we couldn't stop working together. It turned out that Parallax Press really, really wanted Joanna to bring out a third edition, a 30th anniversary edition of World is Lover, World is Self, which um, is her favorite book. The first edition came out in 1991 uh, with Arnie Kotler's Encouragement. And then that was incredibly popular. She pulled together all these different pieces of writing that were uh, appearing in magazines right and left, because of course in the eighties, there were all these journals like creation spirituality and yoga journal and everybody wanted something with Joanna. So it was a lot of material and uh, made a big splash. So Parallax brought out a second edition later, um, 15, 16 years later. Well, when we started talking about this uh world is lover, world is self for today, for the pandemic, for today's young people, for today's activists, that was a big persuasion. You know, we we were all still in lockdown and trying to figure out, you know, can we work together? But um the our editor, our the publisher at Parallax, he say Matsuda said, there is a new generation, they need to hear from you, Joanna. And that they were feeling those summer pressures of racial justice, the protests every night and the climate activists. So we all summer long tried to think about how could we do this? How could we do this? And it was difficult because we were pretty isolated like everybody else. In fact, Joanna's door had a sign on it saying, don't even knock, because she'll come down to see you. (laughs) Thankfully, Joanna's vaccinated now and we will be able to see each other soon. Anyway, Kay was the one who had the brilliant idea, dear Kay, thank you, to invite Joanna up to Trout Lake, back to that sycamore tree. That was the magic ingredients. And uh, we made, worked it out so she could be driven and not on an airplane and the pods and the bubble. And Joanna stayed for three full weeks. And since I was only an hour and a half away in Portland, I could come up and be with Joanna and Kay. And we had a wonderful office working space, a big gathering room. And you would have gotten a kick out of it, all of you editors and writers out there. We had colored Post-its, and we had printers going, and we had the coffee pot was, and there was a wonderful couch, very perfect for short naps, and we could do all our editing at the big picnic tables in this space. So that really launched this third edition of World is Lover, World is Self. But of course, then we had to go back to our little bubble lockdowns, which you know has been driving us all crazy. So uh, it took a while to pick up momentum again in October and November, but Parallax really wanted the book and I committed. So we figured out how to do the Zoom editing together and uh, using the sharing screen. And that the days got shorter and darker but miraculously, with a just tremendous effort, I really have to honor Joanna. You have no idea what a scrupulous and rigorous editor she is. Every word, I'm telling you, every word in this new edition she has read many times. And we've updated chapters. There's new chapters in there. And we get to celebrate with you today that that book is coming out uh, one month from now on June 22nd. So. Um, it's the chance to say what really needs to be said right now, more on deep time, on systems thinking, ecological self. You might have the first or second edition, but I'm making a plug. This is the one you want to have. This is the one you want to give to your friends. This is the one give to your young people. And uh, you will see Joanna's beautiful, clear writing in her own true voice. But um, Joanna, you wanted to tell the story about the title. Where did that title "World is Love or World is Self"? Where did that come from?
0: Well, it came from. I got to fancying over. This was over thirty years ago, but that uh, there were a certain world views that, uh, inf- surface, in both cultures, countries, and religions, uh, through time as in the way they see uh, the world. So one is as battlefield, seeing that the world is actually uh, the backdrop for the most important battle and struggle going on between good and evil. Uh, between uh, the forces of light and the legions of darkness. And it started with the early uh, Manichaeans and Zoroastrians. And and boy, has it surfaced in the last five years in our country. Uh, You have to be on the right of of the pure and the good, or you are to burn forever. Or, and, uh, and it's actually creeps into our lives, when we feel strongly, I certainly have quite a dose of feeling of my own righteousness and that can surface in some snappy retorts I can't take back. <laughs> but that's battlefield. And it's good for building courage and a sense that in the long run, you're going to win because you're on God's side. And, uh, and then the other um, view is... Uh, as world is a trap this world of messiness and suffering is one we really are prisoned in but we want a path that will take us away from this to it's usually up uh, to a, a place of serenity and purity and uh, that creeps into every religion and every culture as well even in. Buddhism. Yes, is there a little bit. We want to withstand from this turmoil to a tranquility and hang out there. But um, so those two, and then come world is lover, which is true. Uh, just listen to some Indian Baj, Hindu bhajan songs or bridal mysticism and you'll find this in Christianity or in India or around the world uh, and tapping the erotic nature of ourselves, world's lover and world as self. And that is part of like the beautiful sense of thrill and identity you felt, I felt this morning walking out the front door. Oh, this is like, and and uh, the deep ecology guru, uh, Arne Nas calls the ecological self. And what is encouraged by knowing our planet is an open living system. And we are, it's our larger body. And so that sense of unity and safety forever and creativity. So uh, after giving a talk on this, Uh, the editor of Parallax Press drove me home and said, write a book about this, book of essays. He'd been with me in a whole season of talks in my house about Buddhist social ethics. And so we threw it in, and we made a, a, and it's become my favorite book. But we, I left out, we talk about it, but we skipped world is lover, world is self is what we find
2: our resources in over and over and over again. You know, I want to highlight, Joanna, that one of the key parts of this book is a kind of um, primer on how to think about um, Buddha, the Buddha, Dharma and systems thinking together. And you are the leading scholar of that from way back from your beautiful doctoral dissertation, my favorite book. Yeah. And um one of the chapters that you've been really working with lately looking at those two perspectives buddha dharma and systems thinking is the one on self and society you've been talking about how radical it is and how filled with social justice the buddha dharma is and i i thought maybe you'd want to highlight that part of uh world is lover world is self though there's also wonderful material Integrated back now between the additions and knower and known do and doer and deed. And I think you'll find this the best um, uh, place to find this food for the mind, as we called it. But what about that radical nature? Yes.
0: And, and and I, you will remember uh, this erupting in us and my ex- such excitement that I danced when we were talking about it up at the working together. That when you bring systems thinking, and the Buddha Dharma together, which my friends are the only bodies of thought other than indigenous thought worldwide that are non-linear. And so, it's not considering them together; they interpenetrate and uh, the and lead you into a view of reciprocity that this reciprocity at the heart of life this give and take accompanies you on almost every aspect of what you're doing so you uh, go out and act for the sake of something thinking that it's going to be really uh, such an act of self-sacrifice hardly because in this reciprocal world the earth or whatever you're engaging with whether it's San Quentin prison or uh, a a a lawsuit on 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 nuclear waste the earth comes to meet you or the forces that you're defending that you're acting for come to meet you and fuel you so that you are every step when you take a risk oh this is going to be such a But I'm noble, I will force, I will go out and save the world. Then the world steps right in and picks you up and and you are in the hands of of, uh, larger hands of life, the loving hands of life that give you uh, rewards for everything that you pay out, everything that you give. And it's it's beautiful to see how... um, systems theory with the scriptures of Buddhism and the practices and meditation uh, bring this forward. So that's, uh, so this, this book is, um, reflects that and what gives me the big charge is to, because so much, so many Buddhist teachers in the West focused almost entirely on the inner uh, adventures in meditation but the outer advent, uh, adventures of when you uh, act for the sake of others with your a bodhisattva heart or your, and that return, how it, you uh, are and how the outer world is in this reciprocal world is can those institutions actually reflect I mentioned San Quentin where I've worked, but that is a mirror of the uh, violence that is in our very criminal justice system. Our need to punish, the violence in that. It's just, it makes so much clear. and, um, And it also shows from the Buddhist life what he did, what he saw in the caste system and how he almost lightheartedly just welcomed anybody in. And he was runaway slaves, soldiers AWOL, outcast, dark-skinned, all the people, and the Brahmins were very nervous and and the upper castes were very, condemning and he uh they tried to everything to scold him or make him laughing stock and he just but his the Buddha Dharma uh is reflected in our if in our minds in in the in the any anyway, rate um I'm over talking this but you can see that my enthusiasm is uh, when you Open the book, you'll see why I get so enthusiastic about this.
2: Well, you've recently given some seminars on socially engaged Buddhism for Upayazin Center and Naropa University. And it's based very much on exactly this, you know, the radical nature of the Buddha Dharma, <clears> that sense of emergence and co- interdependent reality that things just arise, but they arise in a social context. We are not just little individual bubbles floating around. We're actually affecting each other, right? So how about those early ballot boxes? And that's That's crazy what Buddha was doing. That's right. Uh,
0: There was uh, just in the last century from Indian Bengali uh, political scientists going back and in their research uh, and research in the text preserved in the Vinaya and the uh, uh, scriptures of the uh, discourses that the um, order which we call, think of as a monastic order, uh, he called it Sangha but he grew up in a he that's the buddha grew up not in a monarchy where he taught but he grew up in a tribal republic which was self-governed by a, a an assembly and that semb- assembly was called a sangha so when he wanted a place for his followers to live and to work and to uh, transform their noggins, their heads, their minds, their lives. He said, let's make a saga. And then he had rules of we must talk, not just sit in silence. Uh, We've got to have, uh, uh, and you must attend the meetings. And that was very clear. And that if we don't agree, if we have discussions, let's talk it out. And if you, uh, and we're going to, if the issue is important, we'll take votes and ballot systems. So these 19th century s- scholars uh, have found that this is, the, to their knowledge, the first recorded use of ballots and voting in human history. And that was in the Buddhist Sangha in his lifetime. And with that also was the uh, 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 process, if you disagree, then there's this uh, practice, uh, I forget it was something beta, but uh, that's okay, you have a different view. Everything is relative. You know, the problems we get into is when we think we're absolutely right. So just if you feel they have a different view, move down the road. And so they go and have their own sangha. So they're not arguing all the time. And, and that's... Um, so this is... Uh, this somehow it just thrills me to death. I'm just so excited about seeing that and seeing how... Practice things that we have kind of in uh, the Victorian uh, West at the time that the Buddhism came over, saw things, oh, it is so elevated, it is so spiritual. Mm. <laughs> and that it actually comes out of a democratic thrust way back there in uh, two and a half centuries ago, uh, out of the core teaching of the Buddha, which is paticca-samuppada. Everything is related or everything is conditioned by everything else. And so once we have to work things out together, we can feel supported. We can feel an intimate reciprocity with
2: everything. This is one of my favorite words that comes out of your book, Joanna, reciprocity. You've spoken so beautifully of that. And the pair the word that pairs with it so well is emergence. And it's such a good time to lift those two words up as the two faces of interdependent co-arising, the one that's, you know, conditioning things and the one that's allowing space for new, we have systems words for it too, but, Um, the emergence is uh, something to watch for now, as you said, for those epiphanies. I wonder if you might say something to people in the trenches here who are still trying to do their activism in the middle of a pandemic uh, about what you see emerging right now. Oh.
0: Yes. And this is uh, you know, we talk in in the work that reconnects about the great turning. And it is born of that sense that comes when we walk, work together, that we are building something bigger, more intelligent, more enduring, more creative than each of us separately. There's a sense of emergent creativity. And so the word, the great turning, came about in into our work uh, in uh, the 90s. And now we are finding with what we're facing uh, with the, uh, how the great unraveling, uh, which we also, we were naming the, you know, the, 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 where we live in a industrial growth society. Uh, that is Making money off the earth, that is modifying the earth for the sake of growth. So everything, natural systems unravel. And I love that word, unraveling, because that's how uh, things come apart. Systems, natural systems just don't fall over dead. They lose their memory. They lose their coherence. They start coming apart. And we're experienced that. Royally, right now, our whole democracy can just watch it. Just look at the Congress and Senate right now, just beginning to, and uh, and the uh, then, but there's this thrust. Something's emerging. Understandings are emerging. Sense of the purpose and the uh, inventiveness new ways of resolving conflict new ways of doing things new ways of understanding our world new ways of generating energy and so there's this great turning what we're experiencing now as you asked uh sweetheart is that um this is uh not going to be instead of the great turning is something that not is an event that will be instead of the growth economy. We've got to let the growth economy die and unravel. And because it is, but the great turning becomes something more uh, powerfully as a, gyroscope inside, guiding us. It's like a compass. It's like a lens through which we see as we move through the rubble of a unraveling civilization. Something is being born so powerfully, but we feel it first in how we deal with each other in our neighborhood we're not seeing it too much in the traffic between the nations you saw how hard it was to stop insane flare-ups of violence and it is but there is a sense within us every person you meet almost they can when you can't allow them to speak their true minds and their true sense of what matters to them. This emergence from the heart, like this energy, I can feel it right now. And that we are being used for, by life itself, to hang in there and to follow our sense of what is decent and what is right and what is for earth.
2: Oh, this is quite so thrilling. It's so, so many springboards here. We're already getting a number of questions and I'll bring them to you, but I wanna share with people where some of this work has gone. Um, We know it's gonna keep evolving and I'm gonna ask you to think about that, Joanna, for maybe the first question after the slides is where do you think this work will go, and what might the next generation of facilitators where will they take it? But for now, let me take you on a quick two minute um journey uh around the world really, where um Joanna has um been so influential and where there are teachers everywhere. And I think it will be fun for her to see this as well, just as a kind of uh, trip around memory lane, how far this work has traveled and how many people it has influenced. So each of these slides uh, represents an image from one of the chapters in A Wild Love for the World. And here you see Extinction Rebellion activists, who have been reading hundreds of copies of Active Hope there in the United Kingdom. In Sri Lanka, one of our writers, Paula Green, and her Karuna Center worked t- across religions in an interreligious council, drawing on the Sarvodia principles. In Japan, Yukai Saito worked with the refugees from the Fukushima tragedy to help move some of the despair and tragedy out of their lives. they managed to put on a retreat for a good number of people to do this work together, to boost everyone's spirits, um, to move the place forward. Australia is one of the places where Joanna spent many weeks on a number of tours and almost all of today's Uh, serious activism in Australia has been influenced by those early visits and all the teachers that were spawned there. Here in Byron Bay, one of the joyality circles, meeting, talking, breathing together. Even in Israel, where we wish for peace today, uh, one of the teachers of Joanna's work led a very large retreat um, near Mount Tavor. So may this slide send peace from us to them to hold that ceasefire. You might not have expected that this work could have traveled to Africa, but Liz Hoskin took it there where she helped support a program called Earth Jurisprudence. Prudence. And people are there named as sacred natural site custodians as a way of doing the work that reconnects and caring for the land, the beautiful earth. In their pieces of Africa, in Australia, a lot of the focus has been on water quality and uh, protecting the waters. Of course, they're quite strongly affected by wildfires as well. But getting the young people involved, transferring all this systems thinking, and an on uh, in, on in hand. Uh, approach to experiential learning. So they fall in love with where they live. One of the most poignant stories is that of the Hibakusha survivors um, of the atom bombs and Kathleen Sullivan has worked with them and brought their stories and those people, a few of them still alive to her academy. And this here they are out on the Clearwater sloop um, going to the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Learning together. Now, dead. many of you have done the Elm dance. I could do it, I think every day of my life and never get tired of it. The beautiful song, the beautiful witnessing. And um, here's a large group in, in Germany calling out the things we care about. Something Joanne and Fran brought back from their travels and have shared with so many. Now this work is not for any particular age group or cultural group or country. Young people have responded beautifully to this. Their hearts are so full of despair. They are, they're so tender. They, their hearts are broken and breaking all the time. So to give them a chance to speak in this truth mandala, it means so much to them to be authentic with each other. And even at the graduate student level, these same principles have been getting incorporated into some of the programs on contemplative psychology. Now, one of the newest places that the work has been going is to the global south, to Mexico, um, where new questions come up about points of view and other sacred stories. And they're getting incorporated and transforming the work as they go. And, And also moving to the east, to China, to a population that um, is so receptive to this work. And right in Joanna's backyard, Canical Farm is one of the hubs of this work, a residential area supporting each other to support their local communities. And I'll just end here with a couple slides from Colombia uh, with the program called Reconectando. This is the trust walk. You see people with their blindfolds on in a a rainforest of Colombia, making uh, support together and doing some truth and reconciliation work. Really astonishing uh, what they've been able to do there. Well, that's just a little glimpse uh, to show you around the world. And Joanna, let's come back to you with this question of How might this work evolve? What are you hearing from younger facilitators? What would you like to see as this work goes forward into the next generation?
0: Well, there's so much, but I'll just single out uh, one uh, shout out, one phrase, one notion that uh, I hear and that has caught me. uh, and, And it is planet people. That what we dream for and what is emergent is a sense that what we really are is what can shape our planet and keep our planet alive and, and verdant. And that is when we recognize that we are a planet people.
2: it seems that really will be the message for the next generation that they have to integrate all of the work that's been done around identity and culture and reparations. It's a tremendous amount of work. Sometimes falls under this big word intersectionality, but to go to the planetary people, that is the big challenge. And just, I would love hearing
0: from a, <laughs> a colleague uh, her notion that realization uh, that uh, the pandemic plays a role in that, that the pandemic has demonstrated in spades that we uh, belong to each other, we're not separate. What affects one affects the other. And then she reminds me that the Inuit people, when you have a practice that when you have suffer a serious illness it changes you and they recognize that you're when you recover you're not quite the same and you deserve a different name and she said that then that different name for us now as we come out is that we're planetary we're a planet people and we can recognize each other, that in each other across all cultures. Yes, you may be in Gambia. Yes, you may be in India. Yes, you may be in uh, Timbuktu, but you are planet people. we That's what we are together. We'll support each other, inspire each other because we're on the way together, we're on the way.
2: Somebody's asked about that internal trust you spoke of in the first epiphany that we uh, was so beautiful when the, the priest or the, the chaplain there at your, your Christian summer camp really said, you know, Christ is with you right now. The Buddha is with you right now. And the question is, how have you, Joanna, been able to maintain that internal trust in the face of all these crises like the pandemic and all the racial injustice?
0: I think one thing that has happened, I like your question, is that uh, in there's a spiral in the work. The spiral goes, of, starts with gratitude. Like every uh, religion in the world has always, as a scholar, I know that, from, started with uh, that primal, wow, get a load of this, what a place, how oh, beautiful, you know. With gratitude. And then we go and it gives us grounds for the rest of the spiral. Our pain for the world. The new eyes with which we see things. And are going forth on the way together. And that um, gratitude uh, has had an effect on me. I can't do that for... for <laughs> Leading in workshops and in my private practice, or what's private in my daily practice uh, without having it affect me, of course. So I trust, and it comes with thank you. I see a a flower as I walk through the neighborhood, and I hear myself say, Oh, thank you, dear.
2: Oh, thank you. You know, that builds trust. I can testify to this personally, that almost every phone call when I talk to Joanna about some, whatever it is, challenging issue, it always starts with the thank you. And I feel so encouraged. And that's how we really made it through these two huge projects. Well, someone else asked Joanna about, what can you say about the relationship between the inner adventure and the outer adventure? the inner that's the spiritual one and the outer perhaps applied or active what's the yeah. relationship between them how do they feed each other or affect each other
0: well inner and outer in a way is um almost a false dichotomy because you're wh- whatever your adventure you're in it's you whatever you're planning what uh uh, uh a festival of uh, countries or an international plot or whatever, uh, it's you're still you right there. And as we head toward an outer manifestation of being a planetary people like in, you know, in Louisville, they have (laughs) day every year, this a festival of the faiths of the different faiths. And so, that's a beautiful manifestation of what was somebody's idea. So uh, I don't have anything wiser
2: to say than that, but I hope you might. Well, I would agree with you. It's a false distinction. In fact, it's a great point of study. Anytime you hear yourself posing one thing against another you're pretty much caught in a dualistic approach to life. And you can quickly have a minor epiphany by going towards the non-dualistic understanding that the inner and outer are complementary, are working together, are nourishing each other, that they each take their own time, though. It may be that you're in a time where the inner is taking a little more of your attention, but you don't leave the outer world And there will be other times where the outer world takes all your attention and then the inner calls you back, but it's never gone anywhere either. As Joanna says, it's all you and it's all your world. Um, So of course, there's plenty of questions here, but um, someone asked if you could speak a little bit more about, of course, the brokenhearted condition of being human. And just that grieving is is all part of that. We've all experienced tremendous loss. We know that during the pandemic, we could all name the parts. We miss seeing our dearly beloved ones. We've lost people we care about. We've worried about our democracy. I could go on a long list, you all know. So this grieving is part of life, it's not new. So the question is about just the broken hearted aspect of being human.
0: What well, we it's mean? the brokenhearted aspect of being real. Mm. Of being... Uh, so how could you not, if we're in a reciprocal relationship with our uh, the world around us, and you mm. see the homeless, the scandal of homelessness so large in our cities now, or you see the children uh, who mm. are Uh, kept, in those formative years, isolated in front of a screen uh, uh, on Zoom, or so that the needing to look optimistic has been a burden for many Americans, because this culture has been built on manifest destiny and hope and optimism and the successful person smiles a lot. And so uh, it's hard for people to even manage the grief. And also it's not just grief. It is also uh, a sense of, um, uh, it's also outrage. Mm-hmm. And there's an outrage in us that needs to be ex- and owned and respected as well. Otherwise it escapes in ways that are unhealthy and it does damage to you. So there's grief also, there's a, there's a sense of that we honor, you saw the picture of the truth mandala there, that they could speak that and speak of being um, a hopeless, speak of being um, your own taskmaster all the time you're uh, shaming, ashamed of yourself that you don't have the problem solved, that you're just with such a need during this time. This is a time of such change and I won't talk anymore because I, I have something to share with you that I want to save time for
2: at the end that speaks All
0: right. directly to this.
2: Good. We're, we're doing just really great on our timing. And I think we can fit one last question in because I know this is something important to you. The Buddhist concept of heart-mind. You know, you those two words, sometimes we talk about heart and sometimes mind, like they're two different things. But in our book, we have heart-mind. Uh, uh, hyphen mind. Why is that? well it fits uh and it actually fits
0: um biology and uh, medical research and uh an institute uh here in the bay area called heart math you see are there are more neurons around the heart the heart and and the buddhist culture and actually uh they uh Confucian and Taoist culture, ancient culture of China as well, uh, sees the heart, mind, our true mind is in the heart. And we have somehow, and in our dualistic heritage in the West, where we've opposed reason and emotion, and we've stuck reason up here. This is a linear culture that we've grown up in. And it's also a tool of the patriarchy to separate reason and, and see it above emotion. And that in the emotion is also our roots of rebellion and, and saving out the bodhisattva who acts for all beings is looking and reaching out to the world, to those around. And, and is guided by, and in the image for a bodhisattva, there's a, a flame in the heart, a little candle f- flame. And you want to be sure, as my Tibetan teacher <laughs> said, almost like made me want to put my hands around like this, around my heart, just want to protect that flame. Don't let that flame of caring go out, because that is your true nature, it's, and it's in your heart. And that's where the energy is, too. If you see someone tired and pessimistic, they're
2: stuck in their head more likely than not. (laughs) Some, you know, basic words of wisdom here to don't separate. See it all as one. And you can always put your hand right on your heart if you forget This is something we do in my sitting meditation group. And it seemed so radical at the time to move from a perfect Buddhist hand mudra. But to put your hand on your heart is the most fundamental kind of human prayer for self and for others. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. And it's always the case when you have hundreds of people on a call that there's more questions than we can answer. But we actually have a kind of special, a present to share with everyone, I'm going to share my screen one more time here. And show you something that maybe you didn't know was coming. And that is another new book from Joanna. So I I think we wanted to save some time here during this part of the seminar for Joanna to uh, share from the third book. Now, it's not everybody who reaches the age of 92 and has three new books in the course of a year. This you could say is fairly unusual. So I am thrilled that I've been able to be part of two of these. And I want to mention Anita Barrows as the other um, writing partner with Joanna for Letters to a Young Poet. And uh, also just testify that um, this is, this has been the true joy for me with Joanna of being on a collaborative project together this is not her writing my writing it's the combination it's the interdependent co-arising emergence of what happened when we just spent a lot of time um bringing these books together but Rainier, Rainier Maria Wilka has always been uh, a dear spiritual I don't know guide uh, uh resident in your heart Joanna and um So look for this book. It's coming out from Shambhala in June. World is Lover, World is Self is coming out from Parallax in June, uh, June 22nd. And um, you have plenty more to read from Joanna, all of you fans out there.
0: Oh, good. And and speak. How how long? Just tell me how many minutes I have.
2: You've got, you know, another uh, 16 minutes, no, 14 minutes. Oh, oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Plenty of time because I think you want to read something from that Rilke book, right? But first, that gives me time. So,
0: if you will, when I'm halfway through, give me a little ding.
2: Okay, Okay. halfway through (laughs) the reading.
0: Oh, halfway through the time, I will. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, isn't it cute? It's so little and it's so beautiful, and it takes me back. This is the fourth. book of translations of the uh, German lyric poet Rainer Maria Rilke. I encountered him when I lived in Germany in my late 20s. I was there uh, with my uh, young family, had a child there uh, for over four years. And uh, one day uh, near the university, where I also uh, was showing up, I stepped into a bookstore. It was a snowy day. And I remember pounding the snow from my feet and going in. And there on a little table was a book about, oh, I could have had it here, but it was a book called The Das The Book of Hours, uh, which suggests that it was from a monastery or something. And, and I picked it up. And I'd already uh, heard about this poet, right? And I looked, and the first poem I came to, the second, was this. And it changed my life right then and there. Uh, because, and I'll just say it to you, I live my life in widening circles that spread across this world. I may not complete this last one, but that is my intention. I'm circling around God, that primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years and still, I don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Well, that mattered to me to suddenly get that image. And it felt right in my heart because my brain thought that my spiritual path was linear, that it was going towards some perfect city on a hill, shining on a hill. And I had wandered and I'd had adventures and I'd failed. I'd walked out of my course on theology I had left Christianity it didn't fit where I was I was so my life had broken up <clears throat> and <clears throat> except for my wonderful marriage and family I was building but in my spiritual path I thought was sort of a mess <laughs> until I read that oh that's right There's something, I'm holding me in orbit, but I'm not sure whether you call it God or the earth or the sun, but I'm circling around. And I'm loving that sense of belonging. I'm belonging to something. I'm in in orbit, (laughs) I'm in service. And uh, so then uh, I loved the poems and tried to translate them, but I was trying to imitate rhyme and reader now those of you who would like to write poems or translate harken uh, i was defeated by uh, rhyme and meter it was okay in german but not in uh, a 20th century uh, 21st and 21st century western culture that is bathed in broken into uncertainty and if and so that groping sense of we're still finding our way uh, is not served by rhyme and meter and and authenticity. So uh, I learned that just at the time that I met a wonderful woman who psychologist, but also a translator and also a poet herself. And I said, wait, there's one poem I want from Rilke that I've got to give to my activist friends. And so she helped me with that. We did it together. Uh, my German was a little more up-to-date or fluent and uh, we brought it out. And Rilke, and because Rilke had lived with me, he lives with me all the time. So now we sorry, we translated the Book of Hours. We translated the Duino Elegies. We translated, then we put out a, a book of daily readings and now we have um, this and I want to read to you because we were talking about uh, planetary people and the thought of facing something huge, uh, climate chaos, facing that and the collapse of an eco- uh, the Economic order at the core of our civilization. That is tempting to make his claim to the normal, to uh, the past, to what's familiar.
2: And well, this is perfect, Joanna. You're just at halfway, so <laughs> your timing is excellent. Okay. Oh,
0: good, good. Uh, Thank you, dear heart. Um, And so we're tempted and we can see that in everybody leaping into their cars and new traffic uh, jams in in, uh, the Bay Area. But it's so it's so it's tempting to deny our inner uh, unrest and our feelings of anguish for our world and its beings. And Rilke, why I want to end with this because not only to uh, advertise this exquisite little book, exquisite to me, I don't want to be excessive here. um, Rilke speaks of that, this in his eighth letter. Now these letters to a young poet, the young poet, is 19 years old. He's a military cadet in a military academy and uh, he w- has written some poems and he thinks maybe he should be a poet and he wants to consult uh, uh, someone who's just published a poem, a book that he likes. This and Rainer Rilke uh, is at th- that time 27 years old. Uh, but is he uh, I think it may be the first person who's asked that because he he act, begins to act like a pundit often as if he's very wise, very wise about it. But that doesn't sneak into this. By the time in the first yeah, in the first letters, you can see that he's uh, beginning to you know uh, pull rank on 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 the young man. But now he talks from his heart, And it's from Sweden. And the cadet, he's answering a letter. Oh, no wonder I'm squinting. I'm putting on my glasses. Ah, um, seems to have been complaining. And uh, uh, complaining about his troubles as if they were only personal, as if they, and so, Uh, maybe we tend to, under strain of what we see happening to our world, think that what's expressed that in our outrage against stubbing our toe or something. But we're caught. So he says now in this letter, I want to talk to you for a while, dear Mr. Kapos. Although, of course, I've hardly anything useful to say. And so then he goes on. If it were possible for us to see further than our knowledge reaches, perhaps we would then bear our sorrows with greater trust than we do our joys. For these are the moments when something new enters us something unknown, our feelings go silent. A quiet arises. This new thing that no one knows stands revealed in our midst, hushed. Everything trusted and familiar is for a moment taken from us and we find ourselves caught in what we cannot stop. That is also why the sorrow passes. The new is in us. That which has come toward us has entered our heart. As in its innermost chamber, it is in our blood. And we have not learned yet what it is. One could easily convince us that nothing has happened. Yet we have changed as a house changes when a guest has entered. We cannot say what is entered, we may never know, but there are many indications that the future enters us in just this way, to transform itself within us long before it happens. That is why it is so important to be alone and attentive when you are sad because the seemingly uneventful moment when our future steps in is so much closer to life than any loud occurrence that happens as it were from the outside. The more patient, quiet and open we are towards sorrow, the deeper and truer does the new Move in and become our fate. Then, when it happens, we recognize it as already related to us and familiar as our own sight, self. This isn't necessary to recognize that nothing alien befalls us, but only that to which our lives already belong. we will eventually learn that what we call fate doesn't come to us from the outside because so many haven't lived their calling. Their lives seem lived without conscious intention. To them in their confusion, the arc of fate resembles nothing they've ever known before. Just as for so long we were mistaken about the movement of the sun in space we are also mistaken about what lies ahead of us in time. Strange feelings and almost unimaginable imaginings now arise among us. They bring strange, um, but also that is necessary for us to experience, even essential. We must accept our reality in all its immensity. Everything, even the unheard of, must be possible within us. This is, in the end, the only courage required of us the courage to meet what is strange and most awesome. It's not only, for it's not only sluggishness that makes human relations so unspeakably monotonous. It is the aversion to anything new, unforeseen experience we are not sure we can control. But only someone who is open to everything, who excludes nothing, even the list least explainable, will experience a living connection to others and will from that create his own authentic existence. For it is we who assign to our own existence a greater or lesser dimension. We try to make things safe for ourselves, (laughs) but it is insecurity that is so much more human and that brings forth our human strength. We have no reason to fear our world. No reason to distrust it for it is not against us, our world. If our world has fears, there are fears. If it has an abyss, it belongs to us, that abyss. If dangers appear, we must try to love them. And if we will live with faith and the value of what is challenging, then what seems most difficult will become our truest and most trustworthy friend. So dear, Mr. Couples, do not be afraid when a sorrow as great as any you have known seems about to engulf you, casting its shadow over all you do. Remember when you fear that like what might befall you, that life has not abandoned you that it is holding you, that out of its web you cannot fall. Why should you want to exclude from your existence any unrest, any pain, any heaviness? For you don't know yet what, how they will shape you. For you are in the midst of a passage and this passage brings transformation.
2: Oh, maybe, Joanna. And
0: maybe transformation to a planetary people.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for reading that. That is your first sneak preview of a really beautiful book to come. We're gonna close with a dedication and merit, but first I want to turn it over to our host, William Adelglass.
1: Thank you Stephanie and thank you Joanna from the Rilke speaks to so much of your work Joanna the way that all our emotions and every feel connects us so deeply and is a possibility for opening and transformation and I'm so grateful for all you have given and environmentalists, and to me personally over the years. You've really had such a profound impact on my life. So I wanted to thank many of you who are registered for making an offering to Joanna and Stephanie when you registered. As many of you know, at BCBS, we do not contract with our teachers. We invite teachers to offer freely. And it's still the case that our teachers need to sustain themselves with food and housing. And um, we trust in the generosity of Vincent in our programs to, to do what generations of Buddhists have always done. And that is to sustain the community and sustain the institutions and teachers who offer the teachings. This was true of Stephanie and Joanna's teachers, that they offered their teachings freely and their teachers and their teachers and all all the way back to the Buddha who offered his teachings freely. So we recognize that this is a time when many an economic abundance, and we are grateful for your generosity for showing up and engaging in the world and participating in the great turning. And if this is something that's suitable for you, So invite you to make an offering. We'll be sending an email out in the next day or two. And there is a link that you can go to to make an offering, if you choose, that's in the chat. So, again, from all of us at BCBS, and I think I speak for all of us who've known you for a short time or a long time, Joanna, just seeing you on Zoom like this, and the clarity of your energy and your voice and your power. It is really very moving. I put my hand on my heart as I say that because this means so much to me. So, Stephanie, over to you.
2: Well, uh, dedication and merit is an important part of any of these teachings, offering gratitude to all who have supported this teaching and to use the time and energy and effort and inspiration that comes from being together here with teachers, with each other, to take that out into the world, make an offering of ourselves, to let the world move through us and to dedicate the merit of this event on behalf of all beings around the planet together. Thank you everyone for being together. Thank you especially to Buddhist, very center for Buddhist studies. And of course, thank you to Our wonderful Joanna, big hugs, big hands on heart.
0: Say to leave, yep. Well, how was that?
1: It was... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.